You are listening to Problematic Radio. I'm chilled. All right, so political identity. I've been calling myself a libertarian since my early 20s, after a brief uh, disorienting dance with literal Marxism, which, you know, is a whole other podcast. What I found attractive about libertarianism, the idea of a minimal state and as close to a totally maximized freedom as we can get, was how it all just worked. You know, under the libertarian sort of philosophy, there's an answer for everything, for every problem. As far as political ideologies go, it's a kind of closed system, but therein lies its central problem. We don't live in a libertarian world, and there's never going to be a top-down instant libertarian revolution. So how do you make a philosophy like this work incrementally without undermining some, you know, essential part of it? If you have to pick and choose certain aspects of the philosophy, which is kind of how politics works in a free society, you know, compromising on shit, what do you choose? And might single aspects of libertarianism just kind of dropped into our current political system, in some cases undermine the very thing we're trying to maximize, liberty. I'm Camille Foster. I'm a partner at a company called Freethink Media. I've been friends with Camille for a handful of years now. He runs a media company, Freethink, co-hosts a big old libertarian podcast called The Fifth Column. Check it out. And he's really just one of the most principled, sort of softly anarcho-capitalist thinkers I've ever known. I know it's not exactly a forbidden thing to critique libertarianism. And so, you know, what's so problematic about that? But among libertarians, I would not say critique of libertarianism is always friendly. There's a real expectation among libertarians of purity. You know, everyone constantly arguing over who is the most libertarian. And so this is a topic I found myself a little uncomfortable to really parse in public. Camille and I have had pieces of this conversation in private previously, and I thought it would be fun to share some of this with you all today. As always, be sure to rate and review and subscribe. Hit me up on Twitter. From Nation Factory, I'm Mike Solana, and this is Problematic. Obviously, we met through your work, Founders Fund as an investor in Freethink, but also like we've become friends over the years. And one of the things that I think we bonded on early was we're both, I guess, small L libertarian. Certainly, I was... much more sort of like purely libertarian a few years ago. And something I've been really wanting to do is just have a conversation with you about libertarianism and the difficulties I've been having with it myself. Like there are times I find actually that I don't even know that I can call myself a libertarian anymore because I'm taking positions that are super clearly not libertarian. And we're going to get into them each in this episode. But I think maybe we just start with what it was about libertarianism and is about libertarianism that I find so appealing, which is it's consistent. It's the only political worldview that I have seen, certainly in American, the American political discourse that is both perfectly logically consistent and also seems to work or has, there's like so much evidence that a freer society is a more thriving society, both in terms of, you know, economics, cultural. But one of the critiques that is often lobbed at libertarians is that it's sort of like, childish and you want to live in a in a perfect world but we don't live in a perfect world and that's never been something that really spoke to me that critique we should be striving towards a perfect world we should be working towards the thing that is the best not just the thing that is the best right now but what i've been thinking about recently is like what are the things that actually could break the system completely and if you don't stop those is there's just like there's no hope for a libertarian future if you just have a complete economic collapse that leads to broader socialism or something like what do you do if if you actually are completely censored to the point where you can't even espouse libertarian views then what are you fighting for 
if everyone dies of a fucking pandemic, uh, <laughs> like, what does it matter? These are the yeah. questions I've been grappling with for a couple of years now. And, and at this point, I mean, I think it's like, I'm definitely strongly still in that camp. Um, yeah. I still love a libertarian. I still like, I love debate with libertarians. I think they're principled. I think they're the most honest. I think they're the most, at this point, maybe just because there are less of them, they seem to be the least affected by groupthink. But I'm having these issues. So I, I want to get into them point by point. There are three topics in particular I want to talk about with you today. One, immigration. Two, I want to talk about free speech in a world of essentially monopolies on platforms for disseminating political speech. And then three, I want to talk about COVID-19. So before we get into it, I mean, maybe just like, where are you these days in terms of your political philosophy? Like, do you still consider yourself small libertarian? Are you having any issues with it yourself? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Certainly still consider myself a small L libertarian. And by small L, for, for anyone who's unfamiliar with the use of that phrase, I generally mean that I'm not necessarily a member of the libertarian party. I am a, a libertarian. I, those ideas are simpatico with my own personal philosophy. If I had to talk about my philosophy and my politics in a more specific way, like I'm actually a pretty hard edge libertarian in the sense that I'm an anarcho-capitalist. So my lodestones in some respects is probably defined by like Nozick in Man, Economy, and State and Rothbard in his various works. But in terms of the philosophical underpinnings of my beliefs. It's something that I have derived from um, reading Hayek and Milton Friedman and Bastiat and other thinkers like that who themselves have drawn on Lord Acton and Adam Smith. I'm still very much that. And I think the coherence of libertarian orthodoxy is definitely something that's attractive. But I think there's a danger there as well. I think a lot of particularly younger libertarians that I know, because I know a lot of professional libertarians, like people who write for reason and work at Cato, etc. But a lot of younger libertarians tend to have rather unrefined ideas about like what it means to be supportive of the market. They almost talk about it as if the market is perfect. The caricature in the minds of most people who are critical of markets is, will you imagine, you know, people living these um, lives where they're making perfectly rational decisions and yada, 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 and that's, that's not really a thing. That's not what Milton Friedman and F.A. Hayek advocated for. And it's certainly not where I am now. My own interest and commitment to markets, like not a, a sort of fixed property in society, but an emergent property, is that they are an unavoidable reality of living in the world. Like we have scarcity and we respond to incentives. And in a world where you have property and prices, et cetera, and free exchange, markets are going to function. Anytime I encounter someone who wants to achieve some better end by like, regulating the market in some particular way or, or prohibiting some sort of category of behavior, I always return to, well, yeah, there's likely to be unintended consequences that you probably don't get. Even where I find some of these interesting like, deviations from a philosophical standpoint, I, I usually Kind of return back to that. You mentioned anarcho-capitalism. Mm -hmm. This is something I used to call myself an anarcho-capitalist as well. I definitely like downgraded that to just small libertarianism uh -huh. <laughs> um, a handful of years ago. And now I'm at this place, obviously, where I started the conversation, which is like a little bit confused even about that. But anarcho-capitalism, I mean, that's like pretty deep in the weeds on libertarianism. Mm -hmm. For folks who have no idea what that means, do you mind just giving me a quick definition? What I mean when I say anarcho-capitalist is that in general, 
I would like to achieve a circumstance where people are largely autonomous and are able to, you know, own their property and have interactions with their neighbors. Right. But um, in, in its purest sense, isn't it sort of yeah. like, it is the idea that you do not have to have a state at all, that yes, it is, yes. it is just freedom and that the yes, market more, is naturally emergent and not only just efficient, but moral, mm-hmm. like the, the, the state itself is immoral. It is an act of force and sure. we should get rid of it. Like in an ideal the, world. The general, oh. the general sense being that a person owns themselves and they own their property. And it, the only sort of government that would be consistent with those notions of self-ownership is one where people are sort of voluntarily contracting with their governments. But in truth, I mean, as a practical matter, it's the reason I said I occupy some space between Rothbard and Nozick. Nozick's minimal state libertarianism like, is something that is attractive to me as well, if only because most other people will think that it's perhaps a little more practical um, and understandable. So, you know, either one of those things works for me. Right. So one thing a lot of libertarians talk about is the state itself is just its force. And it is something that exists to protect us from other states. That is its maybe principal function is just to sort of have a monopoly on violence, mediate contracts and contractual disputes between citizens and to protect the really the I mean, the borders, which libertarians don't believe in, but we'll get into that in a second. (laughs) It's it's all really at its core about force. And so I think the ideal answer here is like, okay, wait, if we need the state to monopolize force, like that, that is what the state is. That's it's it's what it is. Like, certainly, obviously, an ideal world would be the absence of that entirely. So now I don't want to get super, super abstract. I want to get concrete. Um, (laughs) I want to start just with immigration. As a libertarian, I always felt a little bit scared of, I lived in, I think when I was most libertarian, I was living in New York City. It was like Boston into New York City. And and at that point, I was surrounded by very far left people. And I hated disagreeing with them politically. At that age, I was a little bit more nervous about that. And I felt like this immigration thing was great because I was like, wow, I am way more radical than they are. Like, I'm like, open the borders, <laughs> let all immigrants in. And they're talking about something that actually is to the political right of where I'm standing. So I, I could always like freak them out with that. It's like, oh, well, I'm for like legalizing all drugs and legalizing all prostitution and opening the borders. Yeah. And back then in like the early 2000s, or I guess that would have been like 2008, 2009, when I mm-hmm. uh, first moved to New York City, those were actually all still very, 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 very radical positions. Today, legalizing prostitution and drugs, I think is fairly commonplace, that political idea. And certainly, increasingly, and certainly now the idea of an open border because of this last democratic primary, the absence of a border is now almost table stakes for democratic politics. So the question I've been grappling with is sort of just like this. How do you have both unlimited immigration and a social welfare state. So cornerstone to libertarianism, I think, is the absence of a social welfare state because it's the absence ultimately of a strong state. And you need, you need a very strong state to manage a massive social welfare state. So in a world of perfect libertarianism, you're gonna have a lot fewer people moving to America just to work in, in a world of anarchy, in a world where like you can go and work maybe for a dollar an hour in a factory, but you're not gonna have any medical coverage. You're not gonna have any benefits from the state, no free education. Like that's not a really sexy world. It could be a world of abundance or it could be a harder world. It's going to come down to what you're willing to do in terms of work in a world where if you cross the border, we now have open borders, let's say, and you're immediately eligible for free education, free healthcare. Thanks to Andrew Yang, we're talking about UBI in a world 
that's like in addition to the social welfare benefits we yeah. already have. So he's just yeah. like completely mutated the libertarian idea of the UPI into this like new monster. And so now what we're really talking about is like, we're talking about something else completely. What we're really saying is like, should Americans pay with taxpayer dollars for whoever wants to move here to live? And that's just like a very different question than what libertarians are posing with the question of open borders. So like effectively, what am I even, when I say I stand as a libertarian for open borders, mm -hmm. you can't remove the context of the rest of the country. I'm saying that in the context of this country as it stands today, like yes, sure. in a perfect world, we wouldn't have the social welfare state, but we do. And so how do you, how do you wrestle with that right there? Yeah. How can I say, how can you say you're for open borders when you know how irrational that is in the context of like what it will mean economically for us, it'll be a complete disaster. We're much closer to open borders than we are to eliminating or ever curbing the social welfare state in, in any way whatsoever. Well, I mean, certainly the exceptionally generous social welfare state that you described there, I mean, even the theoretical one in which Andrew Yang has achieved his UBI, I mean, that is a, a very challenging circumstance for anyone who is generally advocating for, if not open borders, like anything like a generous immigration policy. And it has obviously created a great many challenges in places like Europe. In the United States, however, our social safety net isn't nearly as robust. And in many respects, that's an advantage for folks who are advocating for additional immigration more broadly. Um, as I'm sure you know, I mean, part of the, the thinking with immigration is that you are attracting additional labor, that labor isn't necessarily just competing for jobs. Um, in some cases, they're a complement. In other cases, they're a substitute. And to the extent they are a complement, I mean, additional people coming here is additional people who need to buy homes and, and need to buy cars and various other things. So the economic proposition is a little different. But with respect to the social safety net, I mean, I think there are two, two very specific ways to think about this that I've embraced. One is Milton Friedman's approach, which is to say, yes, it's true that having this social safety net could be potentially much more challenging if you have a very liberal immigration policy, but that's precisely the reason to have the liberal immigration policy. Put that thing to the test, perhaps even break it and force people to stop endorsing that kind of policy. I just, um, that is so, I, let's, I'm, I have to stop you there. I mean, that is <laughs> that's terrifying to me because we're in California. You just said, I mean, first off, you said uh -huh. our social welfare benefits are, are not that s substantial. Um, certainly not, not compared, as compared to Europe and not Europe, as compared to Andrew Yang's idea. That doesn't yeah. mean to me almost anything. In California, we're going to be mm -hmm. bankrupt. There's no way we already have. That's true. No yes. way California to, is a different story. Yeah. We have no way to pay people their pensions without draconian taxes on anybody making money, which is obviously in a world of states where we're allowed to just fucking move, everyone's going to leave. No one's going to accept like 70% yeah. taxes here when you can just move to like next door and have none of that. Like, right. yeah, California's beautiful, but it's not that beautiful. We're, we're just going to leave and they're going to go bankrupt. Like that's already a problem. We have free education. Like our schools here are basically insolvent uh, and mm -hmm. we're still offering all of these benefits. We're already approaching a world where I think we're going to have to come to terms with the fact that we can't afford this stuff, at least without some new draconian tax system, which they will try and that will fail. So right. how do you, it just doesn't make any sense. This is not going to work in the context of an additional, well, you know, several million. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. What you're describing is a situation that's unsustainable, whether or not you have additional immigrants coming into the country. And if the proposition as 
as offered by Milton Friedman and not as fully and wholeheartedly embraced by me, but just you know presented here for for the purposes of this conversation. Um, if that's you know this puts additional strain on that and perhaps creates incentives to do something about it. It's true. You could do something about it by trying to double down on the system and keep it that way, or you could try to achieve reforms that would make these programs much more sustainable into the future. And in fairness, I mean, I really would have to dig down into the nuts and bolts of the budgetary situation in California. I certainly agree on all of the specifics about the pensions, et cetera, et cetera. But if the pensions are the principal problem, then the immigrants aren't. And when it comes to things like you know, public schools, et cetera, in the way we, we tend to pay for public education is through property taxes. So in a lot of instances, it's not as though immigrants are actually getting things for free in those instances. Um, but there are certainly other ways in which they could potentially be a, a cost on the society. Yeah, is, but I, the question I, I, becomes like, is the principle, is the libertarian principle the problem or is it the circumstance that it exists in but I, I want to agree with you in, a, in an important respect. Like my own, where I end up coming out on this now is it is certainly reasonable for someone like myself to believe that people have a moral right to be able to move across borders. And if I own property here and I want to employ someone who lives in El Salvador, like I ought to have the right to, to bring them here, to give them housing. It's totally consistent for me to advocate for that broadly. Um, and to potentially be concerned about a particular sort of policy reform that would result in a great deal more immigration from south of the border. And I'm not saying that that is my position. I'm saying that I think it's reasonable for someone to hold both of those positions. There's no inconsistency there. Right. To be okay with the idea of immigration, even unlimited immigration, but to not want policy change that actually catalyzes an increase of it. In, in, um, under the current circumstances, I, under I the current circumstances, this somewhat undermines. I, I one problem. This is not a problem I have with libertarianism. This is a problem that I have with libertarians. I often am hit with this sort of magical fantasy world. They're like, well, <laughs> um, immigration is actually amazing. The more immigrants you have, the richer a country is. Like they actually no immigrants take any social welfare benefits. They're a net positive in every way whatsoever. Poor people have never been affected by cheap labor from Mexico. And that's a weird one where just anecdotally, and I hate to dip into anecdote and yet here I go because actually I don't hate it, I love it. Um, my dad was in construction. My earliest memories are of him coming home, his arms are covered in spackle, heated drywall. I know for a fact that the influx mm -hmm. of labor affected his job. He literally had to change his name. His name's Paco. So he started going by Frank because he didn't want people to think he was Mexican because people sure. didn't pay Mexicans as much. If we all think that the reason that everybody in the UK was furious and like mad enough to do Brexit, if we think it's just because they're racist and has nothing to do with the fact that like there was all this cheap Polish labor that was putting people, if not out of work, certainly making their lives more difficult at the sort of middle to lower classes. If we don't think that's the reason, we're crazy. It's like clearly yeah, I, the reason. I certainly wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't make the argument that, that they were primarily racist or even substantively racist. I think it is totally sensible to say that trade generally and immigration generally create better outcomes for a society and are generally beneficial. And also to say that in specific circumstances, some individuals and some communities can 
actually pay a price because this exchange happens. And it is definitely the case that if you have like velocity matters and the composition of the immigration matters and as a practical matter, a practical fact even, it is entirely possible for a, a particularly strong flow of low-skilled immigrant labor to drive down wage rates for a particular class of citizen and to create all sorts of tensions and to have all sorts of other knock-on effects. I'm totally on board with that fact. I think it's also still the case, though, that one can aspire to have an economy that's sufficiently dynamic that people can, yes, move to find other opportunities. I mean, I think the, the principal issue that I would have, the objection I'd raise is, in general, I don't like the notion that I'm going to be enacting laws to prevent people from coming here to the United States or to California or, you know, Virginia, where I am now, in order to protect some particular industry or community or ind set of individuals. Like that doesn't, that doesn't right. seem it, like I the agree. appropriate it, role that's, for a, for a got, government. Got it. From, from that is a highly ideological and moral, not so pragmatic. Like this is the, there's always a conflation among libertarians between the two and they tend to argue. And I myself have always made arguments for both that it's both, mm -hmm. you know, the moral system and the best for everybody. And mm -hmm. I don't know that that is true. And another one right off the bat, and this is one that I support. So gun rights, mm -hmm. just like, mm -hmm. do you have a right to an AK 47? I think yes. Um, mm -hmm. However, I am under no illusions whatsoever. I think that if you banned all guns tomorrow, gun deaths in America would plummet. That is, I'm sorry, they just, they absolutely would. And I hate when in, people say- In our current society, if you banned all yes, guns tomorrow? Yes. With all of the guns that actually exist. We have tons of precedents here where we have seen gun deaths, for example, in Australia plummet after the buybacks mm -hmm. and things like this. Like, I think that would happen. The real question that libertarians and people really on the right, this is like a right-wing thing, like your Republicans refuse mm -hmm. to, to grapple with is like, what is a cost in life that is worth the freedom? if more people are going to die, is that okay? Just because it's like, it, we should have the right to do it. Like if we banned all car travel tomorrow, yeah, way more people would survive. But like, we think we have a right to drive around to mobility. Right, um, right. Or at least so limit like, the speed limit to five miles per hour. You'd probably right, save a lot exactly. of lives. Exactly. Yeah. You would save so many lives. It'd take did you a that. long time and, to get anywhere. Yeah. And yet we don't, we don't even think about it because we know that's ridiculous. We know on some level, we quickly make that calculation. We think to ourselves, no, those thousands and thousands and thousands of lives every year are not worth my freedom. There's like an, an honest conversation here that no one is having. Yeah, look, I, I think there's, it's important to, to make a bit of a statement here. Like from my libertarianism is, it's a set of principles. In practice, like politics necessarily, like a political system necessarily exists in the real world and is subject to the constraints that surround it. It's possible for me to talk about an idealized society in which everything is libertarian, but that's not what we're talking about in general. I, I think as a practical matter, when sane people who are well-versed in these, these ideas talk about these things, they, they necessarily have to be pragmatic. And with respect to guns in particular, the reason for maintaining gun rights, so far as I'm concerned, which some people will regard as completely ludicrous, is there's no good reason for the state to have a monopoly on the ownership of weapons and firearms. And I should have the right to defend myself against my neighbors and against the government if it comes to it. Again, a lot of people 
don't like that proposition, but it's about balancing these various concerns and mass shootings are one concern, but a tyrannical state that's able to do whatever it wants because the citizenry isn't particularly well armed is another thing. And there are plenty of you know, magical wand fixes that one could imagine for particular kinds of problems. Like we just talked about lowering the speed limit to five miles per an hour to end all of the vehicular deaths. And what we're talking about there is like, what, 35, 40,000 deaths per year? That adds up quickly. There are also other ways to mitigate those things. And I think there are plenty of ways for us to mitigate gun violence in this country that don't involve taking away everyone's firearm. And it is definitely the case that most of the people who are murdered in this country aren't murdered with guns that look scary which is well, no, generally what we're talking yeah. about banning. Oh, yeah, so. no, it's all, it's all handguns. <laughs> and no one wants to talk about that because that's a much harder political ball to toss. Absolutely. That's a bipartisan issue. There are plenty of Democrats who, who own a handgun. The, the second thing, most of those deaths are, they're happening in the inner city. It's, it's, gang, mm-hmm. it's gang violence. It's urban, we're talking about handgun, and that's touchy because then it, that, that touches on race. No one wants to talk mm-hmm. about race. But that is another <laughs> podcast for another day. I want to get into tech. I talked with Catherine Boyle. She has this idea of, you know, the shadow capital. She got a team, which is Silicon Valley effectively. You know, who, who's really in charge right now in America? Is it Washington, D.C.? Is that the seat of power? Or is it increasingly Silicon Valley? I mean, we all exist on our phones, on the internet. We're using these platforms, things like Google, Facebook, Twitter, for all of the dissemination of our political speech, certainly. But then it's everything else. I mean, increasingly, every company is a tech company. Every facet of our life is impacted in some regards by technology. And so the question, the rather uncomfortable question for me as someone who's constantly defending the technology industry and industry generally, and always pushing back against any kind of regulation, the question is like, if in a sense, you are in fact governing if you really are, if the government is being replaced by these companies, how should they govern? This is a weird question that is very sort of contra classic libertarianism because I don't know that it's like a company should be allowed to do whatever it wants. That's so long as you're not you know, violating someone else's rights. It's their property. Mm-hmm. You can buy into a company or not. You can choose to use it or not. But I don't right. know that we've ever seen a world where you have to use the company to exist in the society. And let's just get concrete. What I'm talking about is political censorship on massive social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. If you can't imagine a world in which a political candidate could run without using any of these companies, then don't they, in a sense, have a monopoly on speech? And if they do, what does it matter if you have a right to free speech to like go take a megaphone onto the corner and talk? No one's going to hear you. In a sense, you don't have a right to speech. It's like mm-hmm. the right to speech necessitates access to the public square. And mm-hmm. now that's owned by a couple of companies. What do you do with that? How do you think about mm-hmm. that as a libertarian? Well, I think you're describing something where the right to speech, you you mean that in sort of a figurative, approximate sense, because obviously, in a circumstance where Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube are all competing platforms, it's not as though I don't have any choice. Further, there's a universe of other things I could do, including setting up my own web service and potentially getting my ideas out there in that way. I mean, folks have been trying to stomp out white nationalists for a very long time. They still manage to have their websites online to collect donations from their clients and new ways to get around a lot of the obstacles that are erected uh, continue to emerge. So in a very literal sense, those freedoms definitely exist. Whether or not I can imagine someone running a successful presidential campaign without using those services, 
I think I can imagine it, but more to the point, I have a very difficult time imagining a circumstance where someone like a mainstream political candidate is actually completely obstructed by a major technology platform because the notion of these tech companies replacing the government, I mean, they really do wield different kinds of power. A government can issue mandates and decrees that oblige you to do things or else, and that or else is violence. And it's, in, it's, which means incarceration or death or some sort of fine. But if you don't pay the fine, the penalty for that is incarceration and death. This is the reason why we say that, that the state has a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. All of its decrees are backed up by violence. And I'm, I'm using the word violence there for anyone who's listening for illustrative purposes, um, not to be ridiculously absurd, but like a Facebook, a YouTube and a Google simply do not have that ability. And, and as much as we like them and they're important, we have alternatives. They aren't completely indispensable. And while they might enrich our lives in particular ways, like they have to do particular things if they want to maintain their position. Here's the situation on the ground. I'm in a chat room the other day, mm -hmm. this voice chat clubhouse, Jesus Christ. Um, all the VCs are on it, right? It's the big to do. Uh -huh. So I'm in this chat room and uh, there's an ex-journalist who's now a VC. It's a favorite trend of mine in the world of tech journalism. They go in one of two directions, either like complete meltdown, they hate everything, or they just like give up and become a VC. So this guy is the latter. He's now a venture capitalist and just thought leading right there in real time before me. Um, I'm going to name. <laughs> but he's, I can't, I truly can't. It's okay. uh, so, it's all right. so he's reflecting back on Facebook. And what's interesting is like his views have still, he was he'd become negative because all tech press is negative. And he, he hasn't sort of quite gotten the memo that it's like a little bit different from this side of the aisle. And he is kind of defending what he's been calling for for a while, which is just increased censorship. Straightforward. It's, it is just straight up increased censorship at Facebook. He mm -hmm. wants lots more of it. But what I thought was so crazy was the way he was saying it was so casual. It was just like, obviously, all hate speech should be banned. And obviously, we should have like an army of fact checkers deciding what is true and what is not, what Facebook posts are true and what are not. And so I immediately am just like, can you give me a debt? Like, what is true? How do you, how do you determine how do you determine what, what is true? And I think he, he thought of this as like sort of an attack, like I'm being, you know, a wise ass. And it's like, no, I think right. this is an essential yeah, yeah, question. Yeah. I think yeah. we really, really, really need to be able to determine what is and is not true. If we're going to be censoring people, you know, mass censorship we're talking about of, of billions mm -hmm. of people around the world, like one, I mean, practically, I don't even know how you begin doing something like that at all, let alone in a fair and reasonable way. But two, like, let's just have the conversation. Like, if we can't even figure it out here, let's just talk. Like, you're advocating this. Like, what is it? What is true? What is not? You can almost hear the eye roll. There's like the sense that we all know what's true. You know, we know it when we see it. We know it's fake news and what's not. And it's like, no, my problem is that what seems like fake news to you, it, it just, there's a huge overlap there between what maybe is legitimately fake news and what is just a, a truth that you find particularly inconvenient or uncomfortable i'm not even there's also this thing where i think there's a sense that journalists have that that i'm attacking them for doing something that no one else does i do it 
I do right. it. I have these biases. Like I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I read what they're writing about us through that lens. I can't help it. All I can mm. do is try my best to remember that and check that bias. But what I certainly don't want to be doing, I don't want any authority over what a journalist can and cannot say based on what is true and what is not true. Because I think that that definition gets very complicated in some of these contentious, especially political discussions. And so he just had, he had no way to, to discuss that. He had no answers for me, this guy. And mm-hmm. yet we see a push increasingly for this kind of censorship, not just from journalists, but from the tech companies themselves. And this Absolutely. leads yeah. directly into the COVID discussion because we're now living in a world mm-hmm. where any information now on the virus that is on YouTube, that is in conflict with what the World Health Organization has to say about the virus is effectively banned. Two things quickly, because I'm on board with a lot of that. It's interesting that the push for censorship that you see from the Facebooks and the YouTubes of the world um, and Twitter as well is something that in many respects began with policy. It began in Congress. It was post the election of Donald Trump and in the whirlwind that was created when folks started to get particularly concerned about Russian manipulation <laughs> of the American people. The the line early on was look, we don't we don't regulate political speech. Like, we're not going to do that. That's not who we are. You guys make the policy. Mark said that explicitly. Congress wasn't particularly excited about that proposition, but they still wanted action and Facebook felt pressure to deliver action. And there are plenty of Americans who think it is appropriate and right and virtuous and good for them to be policing the truth because just like the journalist turned VC that you mentioned, most people haven't thought about these things very deeply. And the fact that there might be COVID misinformation on YouTube is deeply disconcerting to them. And they want someone to police those things and and pave the jungle for them and make it safe for them to come outside. And they haven't really contemplated the consequences. But the second thing, it's certainly true that there is this trend and it is a trend that I do, I do have an issue with. I've been very concerned recently about a lot of the censorship, specifically more recently with COVID, the, the pair of doctors who gave, uh, yes, technically inaccurate analysis of what the death rates looked like for COVID who had their videos taken down all over the internet um, and other people have suffered similar, similar fates. I think it's a problem. And I think it's something that more Americans should be concerned about. They ought to want to create spaces or to participate in spaces online that generally support you know, free expression and allow for you know, even bad ideas to be there because that's best for all of us. But to the extent a technology platform isn't delivering that, and it is something that people value and want, we have the option to leave these platforms as people do with Facebook and Twitter and to join other platforms and for new platforms to be established that do have those principles as their sort of fundamental lodestones. I think the real problem here isn't the power that the tech companies have. It's the fact that most people aren't nearly as concerned about this issue as you or I. That's not a libertarian problem. I don't know that what I, I, I don't know that a solution here, and put it, put it this way, a solution is that there's a policy fix from the state that would actually deliver us a better outcome than these companies policing content themselves. I think that it's a difficult, I think it's a really difficult question, but I also think that the idea that you can just up and walk away is not really true. You're not going to just start another YouTube. That's just not the reality of the world that we're living in. And if you are erased from YouTube and Twitter and Facebook, you could also be erased from Google. I mean, 
what about Alex Jones? Where is he these days? Where's Miley Yiannopoulos? Like, like the, there are people, and these are extreme cases. Like, I mean, I just saw some mm-hmm. Alex Jones video about how he's Yeah, Alex is to, still thriving. I saw a clip of him. I mean, he's like a weed that just comes back again and again and again. But I guess what I worry about is what's just over the horizon. It, it just does seem much easier today than ever before in human history to effectively erase someone from public. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if I buy that. I mean, it's certainly the case that in the early Americas, if your reputation became sufficiently bad, no one around would want to do business with you. Oh, but in the early Americas, everybody had had their own newspaper. They were pumping out like anonymous content. Well, no, that's just it. That was, I think... Take me back. That's what I want. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I, but that wasn't the case. You, you did have anonymous content. You could still have that. But there were a lot of competing things. But it was, it was, it was possible to functionally destroy someone's life because the cost of moving to a whole new community was enormous and high. And I don't know that, that things have actually changed that materially in some important respects where things like that are concerned. It's certainly true that, you know, you have perhaps a little less anonymity and that there are ways to find out particular things about almost anyone, but we still have, I think, a great deal of control over the kinds of things that we even elect to share on a Facebook or a Twitter. And I, I think even the assertion that I have a right to use Twitter or Facebook or YouTube is, I think there's something wrong with that assertion. Like it isn't obvious to me that you ought to have that kind of right. And more to the point, I don't really know what someone loses necessarily when they're deprived of it. If you can't have a YouTube channel, well, maybe nobody was going to watch your YouTube channel anyways. You know, I I know um, Gavin McGinnis, like I haven't talked to him in many, many months, but he is rather notorious. I can say that at points in the past, like we have been friends and if he called me tomorrow, like I'd be happy to get his call and happy to know how he's doing. I may just call him like after this to find out. But Gavin has been functionally erased from, not yeah. functionally, explicitly erased from yep. Twitter and from YouTube and various other places. I think he knew the risk he was running in publishing certain kinds of content and engaging in particular kinds of conduct. And I don't even think that he was dealt with fairly um, in, in many respects. But Gavin is still doing media stuff. You know, and he still finds ways to be involved. And the same is true for Alex Jones, not to pair the two of them together in, in a way, because uh, I don't think they deserve the same treatment at all. And it's, it's certainly possible to do that. Maybe what I've been doing, honestly, if, if I'm being completely honest with myself, mm-hmm. is I see the push increasingly for censorship at these giant tech companies. And I want to mm-hmm. just take the, 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 what is the furthest opposite approach I can to sort of like push back against this to change the parameters of this conversation a little bit. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's not just saying, Hey, you shouldn't do that. Let's just have free speech. It's like, no, I'm going to ask for some kind of policy change where you're forced and never ends like there. throw my, well, I just, um, I mean, I don't think it's going to happen at all. Frankly, what's yeah. going to happen is, is we're going to see a push for hate speech laws. That's the next thing that's coming. That's coming mm-hmm. from Congress. You're going to see the Ocasio Cortezes of the world stand up and say, why are you allowed to produce hate speech. The journalist in that chat room I was taught, he said the same thing. It was a pro hate speech. He was like, of course, hate speech should be banned. My question to you is what is hate speech? speech? Can you please give me a definition of this that does not just happen to coincide with the 
eradication of all views you don't like because I haven't seen one yet. I've right. not seen that. I've not seen a definition that can't be used as a political weapon by whoever's in charge. Mm-hmm. This is something that is broadly, I'm always going to push back. I'm like, I want free speech. What was interesting for me about the tech conversation, it's like suddenly I'm being attacked by libertarians and I'm thinking like, I deserve it. I do. I get it. Um, But it's like my core value, political value is just freedom. That is just the truth. Mm -hmm. The question Mm -hmm. that I'm grappling with is just, is libertarianism serving that anymore? Obviously in a perfect world, that makes sense. But I'm looking around and I'm thinking like these political strategies are not working. We are becoming less free is what it looks like to me. Well, that's again, I think the political strategy and the, the philosophy of libertarianism are very different. And it is certainly true. And I, I'm deeply concerned about this, especially again in a post-COVID world about the lurch towards populism um, on the left and the right that was happening before this on the impulse to grow government so that it is, I'm, I'm going to do air quotes here, sufficiently large to protect us um, All those things concern me and the popularity of the ideals that are most prized by me. And I'd say that that freedom of speech is probably the most foundational right. Like absent that, like none of the other rights matter. But I think the only actual way to obtain that thing, freedom of speech, the only way to sustain it is to advocate for it and, and try to achieve it in a way that is, is honestly free speech. Like trying to require people to publish the things is, is one of those things that puts you on the road to serfdom, to invoke the name of Hayek's most famous book. And the road to serfdom isn't a thing that says you will inevitably end up in serfdom as you invoke or put into place certain kinds of policies. It's, that's the trajectory. It is a very high likelihood of you actually ending up in a situation where things become rather tyrannical. And it's very likely that once you have laws requiring you to publish certain things, which one could say another way, requiring you to say certain things, it's very likely that you'll have other laws prohibiting you from saying certain things. And I think that we should, we should regard all such schemes very skeptically. You know, it's, it's interesting to talk about a policy succeeding or failing. We talk about things in the moment. You know, at the moment, we have a broad policy of suppression that's being imposed across most of the United States and around most of the world where people are locked in their homes. That's a question. I mean, well, the COVID thing, I mean, I will, COVID is, (laughs) is the one, it was sort of the most recent instance where I thought I found myself willing to cede some bit of liberty in exchange Mm -hmm. for safety. Um, It it would be like the sort of, uh, I'm sort of already baking into that, the the attack against it. The the truth is I I don't see it as a safety issue. I see it as an existential issue. And like, it's wartime kind of stuff. I always suspended everything in the case of World War II or something. Like I want America to have the ability to raise an army and to fight abroad against something like Nazism. Mm -hmm. However, I think the COVID stuff, now I've sat with it for a bit. And in fact, I think I'm, I'm kind of drifting back towards libertarianism. I'm looking around and I'm thinking like, wait a minute, mm-hmm. separate from the question of what is right or wrong, who gave the mayor these abilities? Who, who gave Mayor London Breed the right 
to say that we no longer have a constitutional right to assembly. That, mm-hmm. that alone, like separately from the question of whether or not it's, you know, good for us or bad for us right now to be assembling in large crowds, certainly right. she, does not have, she does not have the right herself to stop us from doing so without taking that. Mm-hmm. To, I mean, we could easily take that to the Supreme Court and they would absolutely, I mean, they should absolutely Maybe. rule <laughs> Maybe. in our favor. Well, yeah, I guess, I guess at this point yeah. we'll see. I mean, this is the crazy thing about a crisis is people just completely throw everything away in terms of mm-hmm. in terms of principle like 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 these any kind of liberty oriented principle it just mm-hmm. ceases to matter are they wrong though how do you grapple with this you have a disease like covid let's say it was actually much worse cuz now i think it's it seems a little more manageable let's say it's five times worse five mm-hmm. times more deadly let's say one out of five people who are infected die uh, let's say mm-hmm. you know it's it's the most contagious disease on the planet what do you do as well, a libertarian, I, what do you do? I want to start in a slightly different place because I think it's rather hard. And, and quite frankly, it's only so whatever I say, you know, the proving whether or not it's true about how, it, how effective it would be at, at arresting the emergency so that we could all go on with our lives. Like, I mean, it's just a good, it's going to be a matter of opinion. But I think there are some observations that we can make that are useful for anyone who is generally an advocate of limited government. And the first thing is that most governments around the world, regardless of their political, philosophical calibrations, have essentially failed to respond to the pandemic effectively. And by failed to respond to it effectively, I don't only mean that, oh my God, we found out in January that this thing is happening in China and we didn't start building enough ventilators or personal protective gear or whatever else. I mean, we've known for years, decades, that this kind of thing was possible. And in the United States, there's now this now famous clip of George W. Bush talking about how essential it is for us to prepare for this inevitability. And we didn't do anything. And it was not for lack of authority on the part of the government or for lack of resources on the part of the government. And that's not only true here in the United States, it's broadly true of most governments around the world. So. When I look at a government that has plenty of challenges delivering the mail regularly, plenty of challenges you know, running the trains on time, and plenty of challenges doing any number of other things that people deem absolutely vital and important, now, since 9-11, they are empowered to make certain that our flights on planes are safe. If you actually look at the records associated with the performance of the TSA, like the number of bomb-making parts that actually make it on board planes, it's abysmal. <laughs> And, and I, I wonder, you know, one, I think we all got flat-footed because it's a once-in-a-century thing and it's really hard. But I also wonder, you know, the extent to which we're, we're actually making it through this, the things that are working, like they tend to be private and not government. Right, Amazon. FedEx, honestly, like imagine what life would be like, but for those things and the innovations that we've gotten from the various tech companies that we were just talking about, the connection that you and I are having now would be impossible right. 100 years ago. Over Zoom, um, so, we're, we're looking at each yeah, other, yeah. we're having a conversation. Absolutely. Even the capacity to do these lockdowns, which quite frankly seem like a weird Dark Ages-esque solution to a very serious problem. I think there are almost certainly better approaches. And the thing I've begun to wonder recently is the degree to which having massive states with the assumption on most people's parts that it's the responsibility of those people to keep us safe like if it hasn't created conditions that are perhaps less conducive 
to better preparing for these kinds of emergencies and responding to them effectively. Because the thing that actually blunts the curve, so to speak, is the response of the citizens. And the citizens can respond effectively if they have accurate information in a timely manner about an emergency like this. And who was responsible for giving us that information and what did they do? They told us not to wear masks and they told us that there was no asymptomatic transmission. And they told us the Chinese were doing a great job of taking care of this issue and responding to it and were buying us time. And it turns out that in some of those cases, they explicitly lied for whatever motives they had. And in other cases, they just got it wrong in a profound and dramatic way. And last thing I'll say, only because it's, it just happened and I'm still I'm grappling with how angry it makes me, but only yesterday in New York City, the epicenter of the corona pandemic in the world, not just the United States, decided that they would shutter their trains after a particular time so that they could clean them overnight. So that every train in the system was clean every 24 hours. Before that, they were running them around the clock and they were kind of taking them out of service and they said that they were cleaning the entire fleet within three days. I don't believe that. The MTA has had thousands of cases of corona in their ranks and at least at last count, like 60 deaths of their employees. It is a complete and total outrage. And if Amazon was doing that, we would respond in a particular sort of way to that. But there's something about the way that we're thinking right, about this problem that I think is very wrong. Um, so, we just let our government get away yeah. with anything. That, that is, you're yeah. exactly right. Like, had that been Amazon, we would have congressional hearings right now. Really, sure. like, it, it is crazy. Why don't we hold <laughs> our government <laughs> take, take, institutions take <laughs> to the same standard? It's wild. Why don't we hold them to the same standard as private companies? That, that well, you, we're, we're trying, we, they, they seem to want to hold Trump to that standard, but, but it's, it's completely inconsistent. Like, unfortunately, this particular pandemic has become a, a political food fight. And I worry intensely about actually the next pandemic because I, this is a, a new area of concern for me, but one that now that I'm better read on it, like I don't see how we don't move heaven and earth to make certain that we're better prepared for the next one. And I don't think we will do that effectively if the principal narrative that most people get is, well, if not for the incompetence of Donald Trump, this wouldn't have been so bad. I'm just not sure that's clear. I think it's pretty interesting that our particular piece of this pandemic began in Washington state where a massive mm. population lives sort of with full knowledge that at any moment there could be an earthquake unlike anything we've seen in recorded American history that could wipe out the entire coast. Really, their fault is way worse than the San Andreas. We're talking about tidal waves, like catastrophe. There's no one who says this is, this is not true, that this is like a very real possibility and also that it is imminent. And people live mm. there, man. They can move away tomorrow. They don't. Last thought, mm. though, I'd, for someone who is struggling with, yeah, chief value freedom, grappling with like, what trade-offs to make or whether or not he has to make trade-offs ideologically in order to preserve the, the value. I mean, what do you do if your value of liberty is not being served by libertarianism? There's a, a definition of freedom that F.A. Hayek used that I find particularly useful because it's not an ethereal notion of just being able to do what you want, but it's prescriptive. 
he describes freedom as a policy which deliberately adopts competition and markets and prices as its ordering principle, which is to say that it's, it's selecting the economic means for organizing a society, voluntary exchange, as opposed to the political means, which is decree and fiat and force. And I think in general that advocating for having as much of our lives and our associations as possible like exist in that space is probably the most important thing that that one can do if they care about you know human liberty and freedom and i think there's a whole conversation to be had if one doesn't agree <laughs> with those things as essential fundamental values there's an important distinction to be made between general understanding of libertarianism as a, a framework for thinking about rights and liberties and the role of government and the reality that those ideas are not popular in many people's imaginations. And for the most part, I'd say most people, if they had to talk about their essential values, they would talk about democracy and not freedom of speech or liberty. And I think there's a, a deep confusion there. Democracy is a tool. It's like a steering wheel. It might help you get to some end. And I think that, that worshiping it in that way is dangerous because the foundational values just aren't clear beyond there's more of us than you, so you have to do what we say. And that can end in all sorts of disastrous ways. Freedom is a mechanism for ordering society that is not built for an ideal world where people are perfectly reasonable and they're always nice for each other. It's one that's built for a world where that isn't the case, where people fail and they get things wrong. So you have to limit their power to do wrong things to each other. And you empower them to pursue their own ends. You can attribute as much freedom as possible to as many people as possible, as opposed to giving the freedom to some elites who can then prescribe the appropriate amount of autonomy that individuals ought to have. Even in the midst of a pandemic, it isn't obvious to me that that isn't the best path forward, that prescribing in general, you know, here's how we understand the danger to operate. Here's what we recommend is sort of the best things that you can do for yourself. Respond accordingly, protect yourself and your family. I think most people would wear masks in a circumstance like that. Most people would wash their hands. Many people would voluntarily go to a work from home strategy. And as I've seen in Virginia, like people are finding ways to operate their businesses and to fight for their livelihoods under enormously challenging circumstances in ways that I find inspiring. And I, I think it's a, a despicable shame that we honor the people who are in hospitals, who are taking risks and doing their jobs. And we criticize people who want that opportunity too. They want the opportunity to take a risk, to do their job and to take care of their families and defend their livelihoods and not have to suffer through a decade long depression. Yeah, so I will still advocate for those things because I think it's right objectively. And I think it is almost certainly the only practical, sustainable pathway out of this. You are listening to Problematic.